morning, church. Uh, turn your Bibles to Isaiah 53. <clears throat> today, uh, we refer to today as Palm Sunday, and it's on this day that we commemorate our Lord's entrance into Jerusalem, which began the last week of his life and included his passion and his crucifixion on the cross. And for 33 years, Jesus has endured the human experience. In the last three years of our Lord's life, he's been specifically fulfilling the ministry that our Heavenly Father has given him. And he's preached the message of salvation. He's healed the sick. He's fed the hungry. He's demonstrated his authority over men, over spirits, over nature. And now the people are ready to declare him king. And so as he rode into Jerusalem, he did so while people were waving palm branches and laying them at his feet. You know, a tradition that dated way back to the times of the Maccabean era. And we learned about this a little bit when we were going through the book of Daniel. And at the defeat of Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, palm branches were laid at the feet of a priest by the name of Judas Maccabeus. And they were celebrating him. And the people were drawing parallels now as they see Jesus as this liberator from foreign rule from the Romans. And Jesus' ministry gave the people of Israel hope that they would be permanently set free. But as we read through the Gospels, you know, this day is bittersweet because although he was to be hailed as the true king that he is, the people's affections were fickle. They were misguided. They were disingenuous. And you see, the people love the fact that, you know, Jesus was able to per perform miracles for them. But those miracles were meant to validate the truth that he spoke about the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. But the people were more interested in what Jesus could provide for them physically. And so the people had this expectation that the Messiah would come and he was going to subdue all the wicked nations. He was going to exact retribution and punish those uh, evil nations for their disobedience, their oppression of Israel. And they expected the Messiah to lead them into this everlasting kingdom of dominion and prosperity. But as the week progressed, Jesus was arrested. And the people didn't see any plan of attack to overthrow the Romans. And it was becoming clear that Jesus was going to be executed. And so during his trial and his public humiliation, the very people that were screaming on Palm Sunday, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, are influenced by the Jewish establishment, and they end up screaming, crucify him, crucify him. Even going so far to say, we have no king but Caesar. And they completely reject him, and they call for his death after they don't receive what they want. And so what happened? Doesn't the Old Testament speak of the Messiah's coming in authority? Doesn't it say that a king will rule? Doesn't it say that God would come to protect and save and deliver Israel? It very much does say those things. The people weren't totally wrong in their understanding of what the Messiah would do in a physical way. But God knew that there was some more important business to take care of first. He was more interested in their spiritual condition 
rather than their physical condition. And the people didn't grasp the effect that sin would have on their entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And so God's most precious gift to the world was his gift of atoning for our sin. And he accomplishes this by placing himself as a substitute for our punishment, and he pays the ultimate price for our salvation. Unfortunately for the nation of Israel, they didn't recognize their need from cleansing of sin. The life, the ministry, the death and resurrection, the rule, the reign of the Messiah that are all predicted and prophesied in the pages of the Old Testament are completely missed. The people of Israel should have known these details. They should have had their hearts ready for the Lord's coming. And so this morning, we're going to examine Isaiah 53 because it's probably the most explicit vision and the foretelling of Jesus on the cross in the Old Testament, roughly 700 years before Christ entered this earth. And so it's good for us to have our hearts prepared so that we don't miss Christ at his second coming. So before we do, uh, join me in prayer. Uh, Father, as we open up your word this morning, God, I just pray that... uh, you would just prepare our hearts to receive your message, God, as we reflect on the gift of your grace in our lives, God, that, that your word uh, would just be impressed on our hearts this morning. God, as your word proclaims who you are, God, I pray uh, that we would receive that, God, that we would see Christ in the scriptures. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaiah is to the Old Testament what Romans is to the New It's really rich in theology, in doctrine, in prophecy. And the passages that we're going to review this morning, they're part of a collection of songs and poems that are in Isaiah. There's like five or six of them. And we're actually going to start in uh, 52, 13 through 15. And this is uh, an introduction to the song in Isaiah 53. So let's start there at 52, 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. And these verses here, you know, they're a bit of a summary of the song And the Lord God is like the speaker of this introduction. And so, you know, he's assuring the readers that despite what might seem contrary in appearance, his servant is going to act prudently and wisely. He's going to indeed be exalted. And a very high position of honor is appropriate for, you know, the one who accomplishes what this servant is going to do here. And we're going to read about that in 53. But verse 14 indicates that a lot of people are going to be astonished. You know, some of your translations of your Bibles might say appalled or awestruck by what they see of the servant. And by human standards, Jesus, he, he wasn't attractive when he was here on earth, especially in his humiliation. Isaiah says that the servant was marred more than any other man. He was disfigured and broken on the cross. And due to the repulsive effects of scourging, beating, crucifixion, the people would look on him and wonder if he was even human. You know, 
If you think about this for a minute, like many people are tortured and killed in this world on a daily basis. And we read about that on the news. We see poverty. We see condi conditions of war-torn countries. And, you know, it, it's, it's on our social media. It's on the news. But all that, although that might arouse the, the sympathies in us, it doesn't really change our consciences. It doesn't fundamentally change who we are. But our Lord's suffering and his death are different because they involve everybody in the world. The gospel message that's proclaimed on Easter is not that Christ died like it's a fact in history, but that Christ died for you, that he died for me, that he died for our sins. And that's why people are astonished when they understand the gospel for the first time. It's personal when people realize that Christ didn't suffer and die because he was guilty, but because we are guilty. And people are awestruck by this fact, and it literally shuts their mouths, as Isaiah says in verse 15. But here we see that the servant's death is going to sprinkle many nations. And this is an allusion to that temporary sacrificial mosaic system. But the sacrifice of Christ offers the people of the world a more permanent solution to sin. Offers us forgiveness and redemption forever. And so this small introduction here is just meant to remind us before we get into Isaiah 53 that, you know, our Savior is going to come into the world in humility. He's going to be unfairly, unjustly mistreated. He's going to end up dying on behalf of the people, and yet he will be exalted despite his affliction. And so with that in mind, Isaiah continues in 53, 1 through 3, he says, Who's believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or, or comeliness. And we, when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised. He's rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. You know, many prophets and apostles of God throughout time, throughout the Bible, have cried out, who's believed our report? And even though the Savior's coming had been predicted, the prophecy had been rejected. Either because people didn't believe that God would do such a thing, or because they denied their need of a Savior, thinking that they were wise and capable enough on their own to meet their own needs. But, Isaiah says, the, the arm of the Lord was revealed. The Savior's birth was unexpected, and therefore it was rejected too. The people expected a branch, a son of David, a descendant of a great king who was going to subdue all Israel's enemies and make it the greatest nation the world has ever known. They expected majesty, they expected power, might, royalty. But Jesus came in undesirable circumstances. Isaiah says, a tender shoot, a tender plant, barely noticed. He was part of a Davidic line that sunk into poverty and insignificance. Even the town of Nazareth, where he was raised, garnered no respect from the rest of Israel. And Joseph, his earthly father, his caretaker, was a lowly carpenter, and Jesus would soon follow in his 
footsteps as he grew into manhood. And Jesus himself, you know, grew and developed unnoticed. A root out of dry ground, Isaiah says. He was humble, and he belonged to a little-known family. Nothing of his family, his environment, you know, his country, for that matter, drew appeal or attention. In comparison to the rest of the world, they were considered insignificant and of little importance. Isaiah says about the servant, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Physically, Jesus' appear, his appearance left something to be desired. He wasn't notably physically attractive. He didn't have this special charisma or personality about him. Nothing about his appearance was striking or majestic. For 30 years, he was a carpenter's son in Galilee, never garnered, garnered, uh, garnered a following, never had any notoriety. In outward appearance, he was average, ordinary. He would have blended into a crowd and never attracted attention. Not to mention what he would look like hanging on a cross. And that's why Isaiah points out here that he's despised and rejected by men. The very thought of this seemingly ordinary person from obscure upbringings dying for humanity is unacceptable. People can't accept this notion. And so they dismiss his message of repentance. The idea that people need a savior to be acceptable to God or see themselves as so sinful that God would need to send a savior on their behalf was unthinkable. And so men, Isaiah says, hid their faces from him. They despised him neglected to esteem him, glorify him. You know, to many, Christianity is a bloody religion. You know, the cross represents anguish. It represents gore. It's repulsive. To believe that suffering is necessary for redemption, it sounds archaic. And some think this way because in their own minds, individuals are acceptable to God by their own good works. By doing the best they can throughout life, they believe that, you know, if they do enough good deeds and the final analysis of things, that God could never reject them. That ultimately the universe and God is going to have to see their good intentions and accept them for who they are. And as a result of that blindness to their own sin, they reject the idea of someone having to die in their place. They reject Jesus Christ. And so Jesus was not only rejected at the cross, but his whole life was filled with suffering. As people rejected him daily, never acknowledging that he's the son of God walking among them in the flesh. His own brothers and sisters rejected his claims of who he was. His whole life, well, he was, a, as Isaiah says here, a man of sorrows. In verse 4 through 6, Isaiah goes on. He says, surely he's borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way. 
And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, verse 4 says there that Christ was esteemed stricken. He was smitten by God. And it's sad because so many people in Jesus' day reacted against him, rejecting him, mocking him. You know, a number of people felt like he was a criminal, that he was a blasphemer. And that, you know, his death was proof that God's judgment was upon him. In their minds, you know, he's smitten by God because of his own sins. And they fail to realize that God placed his own son on the cross to die for the sins of the world, not his own. And so he sent his son to this earth to bear all of our grief, all of our sorrows, our infirmities, our weaknesses. God's servant bore the penalty for our iniquities, our sin. And he suffered for us. And with us, identifying as one of us, experiencing all the trials, all the temptations that life confronts us with. You know, the whole point of his coming was to heal, to save, to eliminate that barrier that sin had placed between man and God. Matthew 20, 28 says the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this servant's sacrifice is, is necessary because, as Romans 1.18 tells us, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Ephesians 5.6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God is at war with every sinner. And he's going to exact perfect justice on those who are found guilty of violating his laws. Every person has broken God's laws. And we can't help but be overwhelmed by the destructive force and nature of sin. We can't escape its devastation. We can't escape its penalty, death. And we're reminded of that every day because nobody lives forever. And the servant, Jesus, came to make peace between man and God. And God demonstrates his great love for people by sending his own son to die for their sins. Making peace with God possible. Offering life after death. You know, God doesn't have to seem far away from any of us. You know, there's no barrier or, or separation that has to exist between man and God if people would believe that Jesus suffered and died in their place, on their behalf. God will accept them. He'll reconcile them. He'll restore them. You know, Jesus is the perfect Adam, the perfect human being sinless. His death was truly unjustified. The world punished a perfect and holy God, a holy man, a holy God-man for its own sin. And Isaiah says in verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. Our transgressions, us, we took part in Jesus' punishment. And it's easy to think that, you know, it was the sin of the Romans. Or it was the sin of the Jews. We read ourselves detached from the Bible, but it's our sin 
The sin of the world, every sin, including yours and mine, that put Christ on the cross. And he bore that punishment for our sin. A crown of thorns was fixed to his skull. He was spat on. He was ridiculed. Isaiah says he was bruised. And in Luke twenty-two sixty-three, 63, it says about Jesus that men held Jesus. They mocked him and they beat him. Isaiah says he was chastised for our peace. And it's through his stripes that we are healed. We know that Christ was scourged. You know, a punishment that was uh, almost a, a death sentence in itself. He was, you know, uh, whipped and striped with leather bands and with shards of bone on the tips that when we wrapped around the body and pulled away, ripped open his flesh. But it was for your and my sin that he was whipped, that he was striped. Even on the cross, a bloody mess, people gambled for his clothes. They spat on him. They mocked him. They mocked his God. And they were telling him things like, if you're the son of God, why don't you come off of that cross? Matthew 27, 40 and 42, is, they go on to say, hey, look, he, he saved others, but he himself can't not save. You know, what a terrible insult at the worst time in history. And just as a note, you know, that word wounded... It can be also translated as to pierce or to perforate. And Jesus was actually pierced with a, with a spear. His lungs and his heart gushed out the remaining water and blood and bodily fluids and ensured his death on the cross. And Isaiah says there in verse 6, we've all turned, every one of us, to his own way. We've all rejected God, as Isaiah says, transgressed at one point or another in our life. You know, you ever walk near a garden and, and see a sign that says, don't pick the flowers? What's the first thing you want to do? Pick a flower, right? I mean, it's in us, and it just says something about our nature. We're impulsive that way. We have an impulse to sin. And sin has brought so much brutality into the world. So much wickedness, so much death, and that alienates us from God. Blinds us. And then we often turn around and we blame and we curse God for it. Like it's his fault. We blame God for our circumstances, but from the sin. And we deny God, we defy God. But John 10, 11 says that Jesus says this. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep even those sheep that have gone astray, especially those sheep that have gone astray. He was willing to be our substitute on the cross. All the punishment that was meant for us because of our denial, because of our rebellion, because of our sin, was paid for by his unjust death. And he took that punishment from God for sin in our place. And that's the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. And he did this so that those who would place their faith in him would be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He did something we couldn't do ourselves. There's no humanly possible way to remove our sin. And because of that, we are cursed. Unless we accept God's gift on our behalf. 
Isaiah goes on in verse 7 through 9 here. He says, He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. From the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus faced an illegal trial, a secret trial by night. He was brought before men who were no longer in, in positions of official authority. He was brought up on trumped-up charges. False witnesses gave testimony. His trial was kept out of the view of public, of the public. He wasn't allowed anybody to testify on his behalf. The whole thing was rushed, not giving sufficient evidence to be given for his defense. And he was a complete mockery of justice by both Jewish and Roman standards. And Isaiah says, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And Jesus, in front of his accusers in Matthew 27, 14, says, He gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Jesus not only undertook the mission uh, to the cross in obedience to the Father, but he did it out of love for his own creation, for humanity, for the people that are created in his image. And he didn't want anybody to live in eternal separation from God. And so he willingly and voluntarily subjected himself to the harsh reality of life and punishment of the cross, knowing that he was going to free the souls of many people. And so he was silent, Isaiah says. He didn't take vengeance. He didn't react violently to his torturers. He didn't retaliate against those wishing him harm. You know, in fact, on the cross, where you're waiting to die from asphyxiation, that's how you died on a cross. You were no longer able to support the weight to get a breath. And you would slowly die there because you, you had no more strength in you to breathe. Even in that time, in that pain, Jesus in Luke 23, 34 says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus surrenders himself to the plan of God for those, you know, who would believe. And in Isaiah, verse 8, it says about the servant that he was cut off from the land of the living. And after enduring 33 years of life, persecution, rejection from his own creation, the gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus was nailed to a cross around 9 a.m. In Matthew 27, 45, it tells us that roughly around noon, the sixth hour, Jesus cries out in anguish as God the Father turns his back on him and is silent. In his time of most, his most need for God, God is silent. The sin of the world encapsulated in the body of Jesus literally separated Jesus from the Father for the first time in eternity. 
And Jesus screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's at this point he's totally and utterly devastated and broken and alone. You know, death and hell are a separation from God. And here Jesus is disconnected, he's detached, he's divorced from all the goodness and communion of the Holy Father in heaven. And the weight of all sin for all time pushed Jesus to this incomprehensible measure of separation from God. And in Luke 23, 44, it tells us that at the ninth hour, 3 p.m., after six hours on the cross, Christ says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last and he died. You know, usually people who were crucified remained on the cross for about three to four days, but Jesus was so broken and so tortured and devastated that he only lasted six hours on the cross. And Isaiah says they made the servant's grave, not with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. And God's word is so awesome in its truth. And we have the details of his death and burial in the four accounts of the Gospels. And we know from those accounts that Jesus was buried in the tomb of a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. And it's hard to see how this prophecy in Isaiah could be about any other person than Jesus of Nazareth. 700 years before it happens. In verse 10 through 12, verses 10 through 12, Isaiah goes on. It says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief. And when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many. And made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus never died as an example of how to face death with a positive attitude. He didn't die as a, as a martyr, you know, as someone dying for their beliefs. He didn't die by accident because him and his apostles' plans went awry. He didn't die because of the Jews. He didn't die because of the Romans. He died deliberately and purposefully at the hands of God the Father. God placed Jesus on the cross. He determined his own son would die for the sins of the world. It was predetermined before the world began. From the beginning of time, knowing that man would sin and need to be saved, it was God's plan to bruise the servant, to crush Christ on the cross and make him an offering for sin. And God's own son would be the only perfect sacrifice for every sin committed by every human who ever lived. 
No longer was there going to be animal sacrifices. You know, those were allusions to this moment in history. That's typology. It's pictures. You know, that point to Christ as the ultimate payment to satisfy the wrath of God over sin. Abraham's test of Isaac with Isaac is, is a picture of Christ. The, the ram that was supplied in, in Isaac's stead is a picture of Christ. The scarlet cord that Ruth hung on the walls to, for the Israelites in Jericho is a picture of Christ. The tabernacle is a picture of Christ. The Jewish sacrificial system is a picture of Christ. Noah's Ark is a picture of Christ. Jonah is a picture of Christ. These and so many more stories in the Bible, they're all symbolic of what is to be fully realized in Jesus Christ at the cross at Calvary. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus as God's Savior. And Isaiah says the servant is going to justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. But listen, he's going to see his seed and prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. And we know that Christ didn't stay in the grave. He rose from the dead and now he's advancing God's work through the world through his seed, the church. And again, this is recorded in the pages of our Bibles. Three out of the four Gospels record six post-resurrection accounts of Jesus. The book of Acts records his ascension back into the heavens, giving us here that remain on earth instructions, things that are pertaining to the, the, the kingdom of God. He was teaching that for 40 days. Our Lord was raised by the Spirit of God to conquer death. To save souls. And he created this great spiritual family of true believers born again through his sacrifice on the cross. And the Bible says that God works through his faithful followers to accomplish his goals. We're all familiar with Romans 8.28. We know all things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. And he's our advocate. And he's pouring out his spirit into us now. To help guide us through the remainder of our lives as we transition into glory. We have a hope that the world doesn't understand. We have a confidence that there's going to be more for us in heaven. We have an assurance that God is going to keep his promises and make all things new and give us this wonderful inheritance of living eternally with God in the promised land of heaven. And he establishes every true believer from every generation who's willing to repent of their sin and turn back to God. Who are then going to conquer the temptations and the trials of this life to bear a strong testimony to his gospel message. And Isaiah finishes and he says, he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You know, as believers, we're, we're set free from the judgment that is to come. We don't have to worry about standing condemned before God for our wrongdoing. God already condemned his servant, Jesus, for it on the cross. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is all possible because he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Each new person who comes to the saving light of the gospel exalts Jesus. It magnifies him for the conqueror that he is. And these new souls that are entering into the kingdom of heaven, they're small victories that are leading up to the ultimate victory when Christ comes back for his elect, when he comes back for his bride, his seed, the church, and he puts an end to sin and evil for all time. And so... As we conclude this morning, you know, many of you out there might have thought that God punishes bad people and he rewards good people. That the Bible disagrees. The gospel says that God justifies the ungodly. And what does that mean? It means that God declares guilty people innocent. It means that God treats bad people as if they were good people. And this is a, a scandalous thing to say because, you know, people reject the gospel because it, it's counterintuitive to human thought. It's counterintuitive to our expectation. But everyone is guilty. Everyone. Doesn't matter if you're liberal, conservative, rich, black, poor, male, female. We all have a sense of what is right and wrong. And we got to acknowledge that we're not the people that we ought to be. And so we live in this self-denial. We live distracted in our lives. We're evasive. We don't want to acknowledge the truth about ourselves. Every guilty conscience covers up by being self-righteous. We point fingers at others. We don't want to deal with our own consciences. We blame society. We blame our parents for the way that they raised us. We concoct all these different types of lifestyles to escape accountability, even advocating for those lifestyles very passionately to prove to others and ourselves that our sin is acceptable because we don't want to deal with the guilt. Every human being understands justice. We all understand what is right and wrong deep down in our hearts. And we understand that wrongdoing must be punished. That someone must give an account for an offense. That when you're guilty, you need to make things right. We understand that, you know, when damage is done, somebody needs to pay the cost. Because guilt must be paid for. It can't be swept under the rug. It doesn't just go away. All of us are by nature and by choice guilty sinners who have offended a holy God. And that needs to be accounted for. Now listen, our God did something so amazing. So amazing that he charged that infinite debt of sin to a substitute, to his servant, his own son, and he placed that weight of guilt on him. And Jesus is our scapegoat. He's our way of relieving that guilt. He came to this earth to bear that guilt, to love guilty people. 
God doesn't want us to be burdened with finding ways to cope with that. He knows our inability to make things right with God. He knows we need an advocate. He knows we hurt. He knows we're exasperated, we're tired, we're exhausted, we're anxious. He knows our mistakes. He knows our foolishness. He knows the the havoc that's inevitably going to come into our lives because we can't escape sin. But those things are not barriers between you and God. Jesus placed himself in a position to bear all of that weight of guilt for you. All we have to do is repent of our sin and by faith trust that he is the son of God. The suffering servant promised by God to come and reconcile us back to glory. It's not enough to believe in Jesus. What does that mean? The Bible says the demons believe in Jesus. We need to repent. We need to confess Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our substitute, as our atonement for sin. It's the whole point of Easter. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful. He's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God desires to give us new life. He desires to give us a clean slate so that guilt can become joy, so that your oppression from sin, and you could be released from that, released from that penalty of sin. You know, the first words that came out of Jesus' mouth when he began his ministry were, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We need to turn from our sin and turn to Christ because the Lord is returning again soon. And this is the only thing for us humans that we're capable of doing. Acknowledging that we've failed and recognize our need for a Savior. And so church, I want you to leave today knowing that all of our sin must go to Christ because that's the only way to receive his righteousness. That's the only thing that guarantees us an entrance into heaven. It's the only thing that gives us life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.